0: Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray uh, tonight as we look at these nine verses um, that we would see it c- clear to what they are saying and what we are to take from Scripture because uh, of what Luke has recorded and what has been passed down and preserved. Father, in these texts we see the authority of Christ, we see the majesty of Christ, uh, and we see the, the heart of Christ as he cares uh, for those under his watch. But also, Lord, in, in, as we look at the lamp and jar, we see the importance of being uh, the church, the importance of being a lamp on a stand or a city on a hill and not put under a basket. For we have been entrusted uh, with the knowledge of the kingdom of God and are to take that and make disciples as you have commanded in Matthew 28. Father, I pray that we would see the importance of that in the text tonight. We would see the uh, importance of the doctrine of adoption. And we would just see more about uh, Christ and his authority over not only the physical, but the elemental and the spiritual. Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for his love for us, how he has laid out his life for us, I pray it is to him that we would look tonight. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so this is actually, a lamp under a jar is the end of a string of parables that we've gone through, Uh, and while originally we were going to do it last week, I tried to have it to the ending, and again, I was dishonest with time, and we didn't get to it. So now we're going to be talking about it tonight, Uh, then we're going to again talk uh, about Jesus' mothers and brothers, but what we see is first, in verses 16 through 18, we're going through a parable, the lamp under a jar. Then we're moving into narrative as Christ ends his parables uh, and continues about his travel through Judea and Galilee. So first, uh, tonight is the teaching of a lamp on a stand. And I I think this is important. We've pointed this out uh, as we've gone through a couple of series. We've also pointed it out as we've looked at the text now. But Christ's parables are incredibly practical. And so as we discussed last week with the parable of the sower and how uh, some of the seed will not be harvested, and Christ explains that and talks about some people have ears, but they do not hear. They don't understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. They don't understand the, the knowledge of the gospel, and it has no like, real presence in their lives. And so as we're looking at the lamp under a jar tonight, we're kind of explicitly talking about those to whom it does have effect. But the importance in him talking about parables is what he is saying is not crazy. He's making much larger points, and so we're going to talk about what they are, but he's making these big, brash points about holiness, about living, about uh, himself, and they are falling on deaf ears except to those whom uh, it has been given the knowledge of the kingdom of God, to those whom have ears that actually can hear. And so as we look at the lamp under a jar, it's an incredibly practical uh, statement. And so we need to kind of set the scene a little bit in terms of what a lamp is. Of course, we live in the 21st century, and so when we think of a lamp, we think of a switch, or like one of those things that you push through and it does something, or a light switch that, that turns on light. And we have lights that we can like, adjust the brightness to, and it can be blinding or it can be dull, and we, we rate them with these different levels of lumens, and we talk about halogens, these different kind of bulbs we have, but that is not reality. It's not a reality for a lot of reasons, but largely Thomas Edison has not come around. Nikola Tesla is 1,800 years away, and so we're, we're dealing with a time of what they had was fire, and that was, like, the major uh, uh, engineering design. Like, it, it did so much, and that's what they used for light. That's how they, they made a lamp, and so... I, I don't have it, but if I had a lamp here, what you would see is this cup-looking thing. Of course, it's a, it's a lamp, so think about what you would see with a lamp. and It has this glass top, and in that glass top, there's oil on top, and a wick would essentially float in that lamp, and they would light the lamp. And when I talk about 3,000 lumens and a flashlight that could blind you, they're talking about a light that would give off very, very little. And so as we just killed all these LEDs and you're seeing uh, only what we have is stage lighting, it's a much, much dimmer setting. And that's somewhat of of the lamp on a stand. It is this uh, flickering of light that dances as the wind comes, and it does not provide this uh, abundance of light. It's different. You would light these things because there's no city lights, there's no skyline, there's no electricity flowing from town to town. And so what you have for lighting is lamps to light, and you would light them, and you'd have light in your home. And if you didn't do that, it would be pitch black. Uh, we we have attempted to replicate this as we go to Camp Ponderosa or some other events we got to. And we cut off all the lights and we try to play Murder in the Chapel. And if you're new here, that sounds weird, but it's a game. Uh, And we have these like, we we try to get the least amount of light as possible because you want to feel the darkness as you play that game. Well, that's kind of how this was, except there wasn't any artificial light seeping in like we had. And there's this very, very dim flickering of light that is because of a lamp that we put on a stand. And so these people, as they're lighting this lamp, as he says... No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. It's incredibly practical because as you're inviting someone into your home or as you're going into your home or as you're entertaining at your home or your family's at your home, you want to be able to see each other. You want to be able to read together and, and, and sip coffee or whatever it is that you do in 32 AD in Mud huts. But you have to be able to see one another and actually live together. And this light is, is very, very dim, And so while I may have a very bright flashlight or when you're in a movie theater and your phone lights up, you may try to put that in your pocket because you're trying to hide the light. It's the opposite when you're at home in 32 AD. You want everyone there to get as much of the light as possible. So rather than putting it under a bed or hiding it in a closet or putting it out of sight, you put it on a stand. You make it the pinnacle of the room. You You probably put it in the center on a stand so that it can reach every corner of the room. You want it to be seen. You want it to be known. Everyone there understands, again, they understand the practicalness of this. They understand that what he's talking about is light being uh, lavished upon whoever it can be. And so we have to, of course, look at where this is coming. Again, it's at the end of a string of parables. The last parable we went over the parable of the sower, which is, Quite literally, and I hope I hit this hard last week and I might not have, quite literally the giving of life to the soil. Without the seed being given from the sower, life cannot grow because there's nothing to actually grow. It's dead. It's soil. It's desolate. And so what the sower is doing is actually providing life to the soil as he's giving the seed. And as we unpack that, we know that the, the seed is the word of God. And as we look at that, it's the gospel. And so it's, as we back up and see the full picture, the Lord has given the knowledge of the kingdom, the understanding of who Jesus Christ is, and knowledge of, and a faith that can actually save. And that's where the lamp under the jar ends. We've just get through not only going through the parable, but Christ explaining the parable and the purpose of the parable. But it ends with this in verse 15. As for that, in good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and are honest in good heart and bear fruit with patience. The parable says it this way in verse 8. Some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to ear, let him hear. Ears to hear, let him hear. And so he moves directly from this growth happening from the word of God, reaching the soil to no one after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. Why? Because the light's purpose is to illuminate the dark, to expose the dark, to shine. Its purpose isn't for there still to be a shrouded mystery and an area of darkness. sin and darkness but an area that is uh, become illuminated that becomes exposed and that's of course how christ ends it as he goes further for nothing is hidden that will be made manifest nor is anything secret this is verse 17 that will not be known and come to light this should scare you at least it does me of course it's comforting when you know the uh, the, the full message of the gospel. But here is me knowing that I'm a sinner. This is scary. Nothing is hidden that will not be made n- manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. All will be exposed. And so as we break down the story of the lamp on a jar and light comes in at this uh, the soil sprouting good fruit, we know that this light is the knowledge of the gospel. It's the plant that has grown. It's the plant that is yielding fruit even up to uh, a hundredfold. It is the truth of the gospel. And what Christ is talking about is, is looking forward to when all wickedness will be exposed and, all, uh, and letting us know that all will be washed out in the end. Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is there anything secret that will not be known and come to light. This is bad news for sinners. What this is telling sinners is that they will have to answer for every unrighteous deed, whether done in public or done in private. Whether you did it with other people knowing or you did it just by yourself. Something that vividly sticks with me is I had a youth leader when I was uh, in middle school named Tim Sanderlin. And as he talked, uh, I don't even remember going through Luke, but it it sticks with me because of this verse. But he talks about if if all of you in here, if I were to pay A&E or some other lame company to follow you around with movie cameras. And not only do they have movie cameras and they're tracking your everyday deed, now remember, nothing is hidden. So it doesn't matter what room you're in, it doesn't matter what key you turn, nothing is hidden. Everything you do, every aspect of the day, every minute of the hour and second of the minute is manifest is made known. Nothing is hidden. People are tracking you. Not only that, as Annie is following you with cameras and uh, looking at your life, they have this fun technology of a prompter that as you think things, it's popping up on the screen. And so not only does the audience at home be able to get to see and watch your daily life, they also get to know exactly what you're thinking. And even if you think, well, I'd be okay with them watching my everyday life, I would be willing to bet that none of you would want to stand as everyone gets to see and read exactly what you're thinking. And maybe you would, maybe you're bold. I can tell you that if that was showing in Tuscaloosa, I would be as far away as possible. If you could find out and learn and understand exactly what I'm thinking every aspect of the day, you could not find me. Except, of course, the camera crew following me around. But... That is it. We are, we are inerrantly sinful. Mankind is inerrantly sinful. And as Christ is talking specifically to the good soil that is coming out, he's actually offering somewhat of a, a promise at the end but that, that is hidden now, that is not understood. Um, that, uh, sorry, nothing that will be hidden will not be made manifest. And all of the secrets that mankind have, all of the secret sin, all of the known sin, it will come to light. You will have to answer for it. These paths where seed was cast and it did not bear fruit, they are going to have to answer for the rejection of the seed. They're going to have to answer for their disillusionment and their rejection of the gospel. They're going to have to answer for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They're going to have to answer for every aspect and every wicked deed they ever did, because God is holy and he refuses to let any sin go by unpunished. All wickedness will come about. All secrets will be made known. As Christ followers, take care then how you hear, for the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Again, referring to the knowledge described, uh, referring to the lamp. This is somewhat of a burden, I I have found, and it's not a burden in the sense that my shoulders ache, but Christianity, Christians explicitly, those who uh, associate themselves and belong to the church of Jesus Christ, care with them a burden of knowledge. That was a term I didn't learn until I was a junior in college, and maybe some of you are all familiar with it. But it's this understanding that you, you, you know the truth behind something. And so we've been told that uh, God has given out the seed of life, and that seed of life is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God became manifest in the flesh, walked the earth, perfectly fulfilled the law, and then died and resurrected from the dead. And it's to those things that we uh, agree to and confess as Christians. And by the way, if, if you just heard everything I said, that is the minimum qualifications for what it takes to be a Christian is to attest to the life, the legacy, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's these things that we've been entrusted with. It's this gospel that we are to proclaim that Christ has come to save the sinner. And so why do I call that a weight of knowledge? You know, if you're reading your Bible honestly, if you're following with the teaching of Jesus Christ, you know that this life is all we have. And I'm not trying to get esch- uh, like talking about eschatology here. Of course, there, there's an eternal life. But my point is, there isn't a point that comes after heaven where the Lord says, okay, now do you accept me? It's this point on earth now where you decide do you follow Jesus or not? Is he Lord of your life or not? Do you serve yourself or do you serve him? This is a life that we have. And so we have the burden of knowledge as Christians that we know that there is one way, as John 14:6 says, there is one way to heaven and that is the man, Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and life, and no one gets to the Father except through him. And so if, if you knew tomorrow that uh, I was going to die, You knew knew for whatever reason that I was going to get in the car at 7.30, and as I drove out of my block at 7.35, I don't know why it takes me five minutes to go an entire block, but apparently it does. As I pull out of my block into the street, someone is going to be flying at 80 miles an hour, hit me on the driver's side door. I'm going to have a head contusion against my window. It's going to slit my whatever jugular is here, and I am going to bleed out. I know I'm trying to be incredibly graphic. I hope you all appreciate that. I am going to die. When you slit your jugular, you have like 12 seconds or something like that until you die. Six seconds? Appreciate it, Caleb. You have a very limited amount of time until you die. I don't know if it's six or 12 or two minutes. Regardless, I, did, I will not have enough time to get to an emergency room. And you know that, and you're going to bed tonight, and you think, wow, I'll call Zach in the morning and let him know. And if you think that, you're a jerk. What you should do with that knowledge, knowing that, Uh, unbeknownst to me, tomorrow as I leave my house, I am going to die. I leave my son orphaned and my wife abandoned and will no longer live on this earth. Surely, if you have any goodness and any honesty about you, you're going to call me, you're going to text me, you're going to email me, you're going to woof me if you're an office fan. And if that doesn't work, you're going to drive to my house, knock on my door, and if I don't come to the door, you're going to break in and let me know that tomorrow, if I leave at 7 o'clock, I am going to die. I think it was 7.30, but that's neither here nor there. What you would have in that moment, the, 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 the issue in your head, would be that you have the weight of knowledge. You know something that I don't, and it concerns my immediate safety my immediate life, and not only that, but the people around me. And my point is, the weight of knowledge that we have as Christians is that the people around you, the people in this room even maybe, who do not know Jesus Christ, live in a constant threat to their eternal life. You, your friends, live in a constant threat to their eternal life because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. You know, surf the news, watch Facebook, come after horror story of horror story. Look at the last year of uh, 2020 as we saw the in global collapse because of COVID as people who should not be dying are dying. And, and it's this crazy thing. And for me and for everyone surrounding my age, as, as we look and talk about the vaccine, as we talk about other things regarding our life, what you, what you realize is that you're mortal. Nobody lives forever. Everyone is going to die. That's one of the very few promises we have in this life. And what we know as Christians is that we are to go and if we must, beg people and plead with them to believe the gospel. Because it is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of eternal security. And so as we talk about a lamp under a jar, this lamp, remember the light being the knowledge of the gospel, the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we are to light, as far as it depends on us, the lamps around us. Charles Spurgeon was once quoted as saying, shall we let people go to hell? Absolutely, but only first, once we've pushed and shoved and bitten and pulled and tried to do all we can with all of our strength and kept them from walking across uh, the threshold of life into death, into eternal damnation. You should... Be spreading your light as much as you can. As people look at you, they should see you for what you are as a Christian who before all else has the value of eternity, eternally minded, seeking to have everyone else know of your Lord, to know of Jesus Christ. We don't light lamps and cover them. You don't be given this secret knowledge of eternal life that is the man Christ Jesus and then seek to stifle it by telling no one. It's negligent, it's selfish, and it's sinful, and that's where Christ goes. Take care then how you hear, for the one who has, more will be given, and for the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So then Christ goes into his mothers and brothers. His mothers and brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. You know, we, we talked about this last week, so we're going to spend very, very little time here. But I, I think we should see how well this follows the preceding passage. What is he saying? My family are those who hear the word of God and do it. Who, those who have been lit by the light, live by the light, and seek for other people to know of Jesus Christ by making disciples, by making the gospel known. D.L. Moody, as he talks about, uh, well, I had it here, but oh, it's up on the screen. D.L. Moody, as he talks about a uh, holy living, he says, it is a great deal better to live a holy life than to talk about it. Lighthouses do not ring bells and fire cannon to call attention to their shining. They just shine. Now, I do have an issue here. Of course, we should be preaching and talking about the gospel, but it is also incredibly important as we talk to people about the gospel that it is evident in our life that we are a light for the kingdom of heaven, that people can look at us and see Jesus Christ. For all intents and purposes, we are the family of Jesus Christ. We have been set apart as members of his kingdom. We are his, we are legal, and he has bought us through his amazing grace. I put up there it is legal because uh, sin requires a blood penalty, but as we are adopted into the kingdom, it is necessary to be known that we are also blood relatives because we have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we move into the narrative aspect um, for eight minutes. Um, now we move into the narrative aspect about Jesus calling the storm. This is one of my favorite stories. I think it's marvelous as we, we see Christ just completely showing off his authority over the elements of the world. It, it is one thing that time and time again I have returned to uh, as you look at verse 25 And uh, they marvel saying to one another, who then is this? It's just an unbelievable uh, passage of scripture, but we're going to read it. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out and they sailed. He fell asleep. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind, the raging waves, and they ceased And there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. So important here. This was supposed to be, at least as far as the disciples and apostles know at at this time period, as far as they know, this is a regular day at the lake. They are going with Jesus Christ. They're going to go across the water to the the other side of Galilee, and that's where they're going to be for whatever reason, whatever uh, intents and purposes he has for his ministry. And what we do know about those who are on the boat, there are at least four of them, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Those are the four that we know were called out of being fishermen to become fishers of men, right? They were called to be disciples after leaving their previous profession of fishermen. There are three more that we think this because upon Jesus' resurrection at the end of Luke, as he goes and looks for his disciples again and makes them that uh, food of fish, as uh, he calls to those four, Thomas, Philip, and Nathaniel are also with him. We aren't told what their profession is, but we are kind of inferring there because they're all together at the end at at the docks. So what we know is if Jesus has 12 apostles, 12 disciples, they walk with him. They're the 12. There's seven of them that are like avid fishermen. When I say avid, they aren't like me or some like other lame kid from Bastia who has spent way too much money on fish they can't catch, and are, are like enjoying to be hobbyist fishermen in their in their daytime. These are people who make their living by fishing. Don't get me wrong, if fishing's a hobby, pursue it. Fishing's awesome, but these men didn't do it as a hobby. They didn't do it for fun. They didn't do it for leisure. They did it because they had to. They put food on the table and they got wa- uh, water in their um, houses, and so that's what these men are known for. And so they're they're seasoned fishermen. If you've ever been deep-sea fishing, I have. I went out and, like, I start to get nauseous on a boat because I'm deep-sea fishing because I'm kind of a loser. Uh, I'm just kidding. If that happens to you, it's okay. But I, I just I, – I, I'm a land dweller, and so being that far out in the water makes me sick. But uh, the people who took me out there, they're fine because they're seasoned fishermen. They're, they're fully okay with being on the water. Their bodies don't react in that way. That is to say these seven men, all who should have been avid fishermen – are out there knowing that it takes about two hours to go completely across the lake. And as they get on the boat, Christ is going to go to sleep. And then what was a normal day, this giant of a storm breaks out in the Sea of Galilee. There's a couple of things here. One, these storms are not irregular. Storms happen all the time in Galilee. uh, The sea sits between mountains. And so as wind comes over the mountains, it barrels down towards the water, often causing these random storms that pop up and cause fishermen to go back. Again, These are avid fishermen. If I'm deep sea fishing and and a storm pops up, I am freaking out because I am not an avid fisherman. The guys out there are probably fine. They're used to being at storms on their boat. Seven of these men should have been completely fine because they're used to storms. I'm saying this because this storm was a little irregular. It has taken seven seasoned men and had them run to their master on the boat saying, master, master, we are perishing. They awake him from his slumber because he seemingly has no concern. And the other 12 feel like they're going to die. And so they wake him up. What I find ironic is that they have no idea what he's going to do. They have no understanding. Christ up to this point has only healed. He's cast out demons. He's done some miracles, but he hasn't done anything elemental. He hasn't commanded wind. He hasn't commanded waves. They haven't seen any of that. And so they wake him up with fear, because this is the man they're following. He called him out on the lake, and said, go and wake him up. And then he gets up. It's incredible. He awoke, he rebukes the wind and the waging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And the reason I said they didn't expect anything out of him is because when that happens, they marvel. After Christ gets up and rebukes the winds and the waves, they look at him like, oh my gosh, he did it. They had no reason or understanding to think that he was going to immediately silence the wind and the waves. Just like if we were out on the water and, and something like this happened and a man got up on the boat and commanded it to stop storming or stood at the bank of Katrina as the uh, uh, hurricane just came through. Not the bank of Katrina, the bank of New Orleans. As the hurricane just came through and said stop and it dissipated, we, we would be like, who is this guy? How is he doing that? And that's their reaction. There's this crazy storm that none of them are regular to and Christ— waking up from his slumber, gets up and rebukes the elements and they stop immediately. And it says, I love it, it says, A calm. Like it's, it's tranquil. The waves stop moving, the winds stop blowing, they are alone. What was previously a stormy day has completely subsided. Because Christ demonstrates not only his kind of authority, he doesn't beg with the wind, he doesn't beg with the water, he doesn't ask it please to stop. He tells it, cease. He rebukes it and it stops. Why? Because he is completely sovereign. He is the manifestation of the living God and he has absolute authority over the winds and the waves. There's two doctrines here that I think are incredible. We're going to talk about both of them, probably. Um, The first one is ex nihilo. It's the idea of creation. As we look at uh, the Genesis 1 account, which would have probably been helpful to have up there, the Genesis 1 account, what we see is that God, by his spoken power, creates every aspect of everything. Ex nihilo, means out of nothing. It's an old Latin phrase, and the reason that I like to say ex nihilo is because there's a song by Timothy Brindle called Self-Sufficiency because I'm a nerd who listens to Reformed rap. And in it, he's like explaining some doctrines, and he gets to ex nihilo, and he like – there's this moment where he goes, ex nihilo. And then like it, it, the beat shifts. And it's pretty cool. It's probably super lame, and you'll all hate it, but I love it. Um, and so, like, I, I love saying ex nihilo because it runs me that, but really it just means out of nothing. And it, I-, I promise I'm not pretentious. I'm just a nerd, and I like that song. But it means that out of nothing, out of nothing, Christ created all things. Out of nothing, God created all things. There was no uh, matter. There was nothing. At the beginning of time, uh, as the Father is dwelling forever and uh, sustained in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he saw fit to make something, and thus we see the universe. Out of nothing. God created. Next, what we see is this matter of preservation. And I, uh, I thought I had several texts up there, but I actually did not. I meant to copy them in, and I forgot. But we're going to read one specifically. It's Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verse 3. I, I really do apologize that it's not, on the, not up on the screen, but hopefully you'll be able to just get the gist of it. It's incredibly powerful, and what it means is even more so. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I said I was going to stop there. Uh, I need to read one more. Colossians 1, uh, verses 16 and 17. 15, 16, and 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's this doctrine of preservation, which is this uh, idea that is incredibly complicated, but we're going to make it incredibly simple. Everything that is reality and everything that is in existence is only in existence because God is actively and passively willing it to, do, to be so. One, another quote from Charles Spurgeon uh, is uh, an atom or a particle of dust does not dance in a beam of light unless God has willed it to do so. It's this aspect of his complete and supreme authority over everything. But not only is he completely supreme over everything, he also, by the power of his being, as we saw in Colossians 1, is preserving creation, sustaining creation, allowing it to exist. The minute Christ stopped doing this, the world would dissipate. That is the power he demonstrates here in the storm. His absolute authority over everything elemental, over everything physical. And so I just mentioned that this is the first time they've seen that. And so that's what calls, uh, causes them at the end as they marvel, say to one another, who then is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. They're amazed, they're perplexed. They are just continuing to unravel who this man is. So the two things, Matthew and Luke phrase it very similarly, but Mark does it a little bit differently. In Mark chapter 4, verse 40, he says, instead of, um, where is your faith? He says to them, have you still no faith? You've been with me all this time. You've seen what I can do, and you still do not have faith in who I am. That's a jarring question in the gospel of Mark as he records it. What's important to point out as we look at this is they don't know. What they were expecting from the teacher. They didn't know what they were going to get from their master. What they knew was that they were going to die. And their hope in that moment was to talk to the holy man himself, their teacher, their master, who they'd been following, and implore to them that they were going to perish, hoping that he would be able to help them. We've seen it with sickness, we've seen it with ailments. We've seen him raise the dead. Now we see him command the elements. What we're seeing demonstrated in the gospel is the manifestation of the living God. That he is, as Colossians said, the exact imprint of his nature and he walked among us. He lived with us. He lived a perfect life that we may know him and spend eternity with him. And I really do, I mean, we're going to end here today. Who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? I was talking to my brother, Rand, who most of y'all have met at some point or another, about uh, an easy way to share the gospel with people. You know, as you see a lamp under a jar, we see that there's this importance for sharing the gospel. And so Rand, who who is self-admitting that he's not the best at talking to random strangers about the gospel, said when he was in seminary, they they taught him a whole bunch of different ways that were effective, but there was one that he found to be the most uh, effective for him. Made him the most comfortable, and it was the easiest way to get people to engage. And so the first question was, have you heard of Jesus Christ? And of course, most people, especially in the United States, but if they're not living under a rock, would say yes. I've heard of Jesus Christ, whether it be in an R-rated movie because he mutters it under his breath or I've heard of the story or read of the Bible. I know who Jesus Christ is. And the next question is, who is Jesus Christ? And the person would say, oh, he's the son of God. Because that's who Jesus Christ is believed to be. That's who the Bible proclaims him to be. And for the third part, that's who he is. And the third question, and I think it really fits in well here, is this. Why does that matter? And that's typically where people would get a little tripped out. They've had an easy time answering their first two questions because it's pop culture knowledge about who Jesus Christ is. But when it gets into the third point, what they realize, even seasoned believers who have been to church every Sunday of their lives, realize they do not know. They've heard of Jesus Christ, they know he's the Son of God, and they have no idea why that's important. They have no idea why it matters. They don't know who he is. In any way that is actually factual, relational, or knowledgeable, they know idea an idea of an image or of a fable, and they know not the man. I would have you all ask yourselves that question over the next couple of days and for the rest of your life. If you haven't come to a firm answer, who is Jesus Christ, and why does it matter? This book we're reading, uh, Luke, explicitly. It's a book writing together in a concise way, in an educated way, the things that have taken place so there may not be a mistake. This is the life of the God-man who descended, who lived a life, who fulfilled the law, and who died for sins. And what we know of him as whether we're in a storm on the Sea of Galilee, whether we're facing the threat of cancer in our families, whether your wife has high blood pressure as she's giving birth to your first son, whatever it is, whatever life storm is, whatever struggle you have, whatever relationship you're in, whatever issue that has popped up, what gets us through it, the knowledge of the lampstand, the, the understanding that we have as Christians that we are to share out is that there is a living God. And apart from all of this, from all the struggle, all the, all the chaos, all, all, all of the pain and heartache, all of it. He is faithful. The people around us are not. Unfortunately, and hopefully none of your parents write me an email, they're not. Of course, they probably are, they probably love you very much, but they will in some way or another, at some point in time, fail you. My parents have. If you talk to any adult, I'm sure they'll tell you their parents have. The reality we have is that Jesus Christ has already fulfilled the law. We are not counting on him for anything else because it has already been fulfilled. And so there's an active promise that is maintained. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we go into small groups, that we would speak of your son, we would speak of his completed work, and we would worship you for God who loves and cares for his people. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen.